The Colorado Behavioral Health and Wellness Summit brought clinicians, educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders in the field of behavioral health together at the University of Denver. The summit was a collaboration between the Mental Health Center of Denver, the University of Denver, and Envision U, who were gracious enough to invite the Emergency Medical Minute to record the event and share it with you all. Here is Marion Rourke, the Substance Use Resource Coordinator for the City and County of Denver, with Maggie Kaufman, a Health Equity Data Analysis for the City and County of Denver, and Jean Finn, a Substance Misuse Manager for the City and County of Denver, with their presentation on strategies for remaining adaptive and agile in response to the dynamic issue of substance misuse. Thank you all for joining us on a snowy morning. Um, we are here from the City and County of Denver Department of Public Health and Environment. Uh, my name is Maggie Kaufman. I'm our Health Equity Data Analyst, um, and we are both here from the Community and Behavioral Health Division at the Public Health Department. My name is Marion Rourke. I'm the Substance Use Resource Coordinator there. Um, so I'm in all the same thing she is, and then the Office of Behavioral Health Strategies is my specific office. So we'll just jump in here and kind of talk a little bit about the learning objectives. Um, they were in some of the packets too, so you might be familiar with these, but really today we want you all to come away with an understanding of, you know, really the importance of using a participatory collective impact approach um, to trying to connect with hard to reach populations um, and understanding how to apply strategies to dynamically respond to issues of substance misuse in any community. Um, and we really want to also impart that uh, using a data-driven approach is really important and has really changed the way that we've approached our programming over the course of the last year and a half. Um, so we started um, our program for substance use in um, like early 2017 and ended up releasing a strategic plan um, July of 2018 um, and really wanted to highlight that this wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have um, support from our mayor and from our executive director. They really helped to be able to pull together leaders from across the city um, to start addressing um, opioids and other substance misuse. Um, so another wonderful partner that we have is the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. Um, and so we wanted to align with them because um, they are using a collective impact model that was already being recognized in the state, and so we wanted to align our efforts with theirs. Um, so there, we focus on mutually reinforcing activities and initiatives, leveraging funding. We didn't want to repeat things that they were already doing, so we have different things that are specific to Denver that we focus on, but a lot of the things can be statewide, and so we didn't want to really double dip into that. Um, and the consortium had support from their governor, so it really gave us um, kind of push to be able to ask our mayor for that support to bring folks together. Um, so like I mentioned before, um, this led to an opioid response strategic plan. Um, we had multiple sessions where we brought together first just city stakeholders, uh, or city agency stakeholders, and then brought um, together people from throughout the community, so treatment providers, people in recovery, um, other community members, um, to really come up with what is it that we're trying to solve for, and we ended up with three overarching goals, which are preventing substance misuse, improving treatment access and retention, and reducing harm. Um, and so we know that this is, um, you know, we focused on opioids specifically at first because that's really what's in the headlines and what was catching attention and what was going to get people to act. Um, but we wrote it in a way that it's really flexible to be able to change between substances. The titles on some things may say opioid, but when you go back through it and read the actual language there, it's really talking about um, substance use and behavioral health as a whole. 
Um, so earlier this year, we initiated three, or, sorry, four action teams um, that focus on these different areas listed here. Um, so members are all participating on a volunteer basis, which sometimes can make it difficult because everyone has their own jobs, things like that. Um, and none of the chairs are um, city or department staff, um, which is, really helps to show that they have that organizational support for them to participate in this. Um, and it's structured so that um, these focus on different things in the strategic plan, but that the groups are allowed to choose how they want to address some of the different strategies there. We really wanted people to have their own buy-in and really be able to build up what projects they wanted to focus on um, on their own. So one of the other things we really focused on in the strategic plan to allow us to remain flexible and kind of adaptable to changing issues in Denver was really trying to approach this with a data-driven lens. Um, and that includes monitoring issues of substance misuse and risk and protective factors at a population level, and also looking at emerging trends in Denver specifically. Um, we also really wanted to write the strategic plan in a way that had measurable outcomes so that we could be driving our efforts written into this plan from population level information and then monitoring that Denver specific and initiative specific outcome information to make sure that we were responding most appropriately. Um, and this really also helped us establish partnerships across the city and also across um, non-city agencies in Denver to allow for data sharing and really starting to understand what was happening in Denver in terms of substance misuse. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the data that did inform how this strategic plan was written, um, what initiatives we started out with, and then how things have changed in the last year. Um, one of the first things we started monitoring was drug-related deaths. So, you know, the ultimate goal of the strategic plan is to prevent drug-related fatalities in Denver. Um, so we really needed to understand our baseline. You know, where are we starting from? What, what are um, drug-related deaths looking like in Denver? As Marian said, you know, a lot of what we hear nationally is about opioids. Um, and as we started monitoring information from our medical examiner's office, we realized in Denver, you know, the drug-related deaths were really about methamphetamine, um, heroin specifically, and also polysubstance use. So we were seeing a lot of increases in cases where people had multiple drugs in their system at the time of death. So that really led us to change a little bit the way we were thinking about programming um, and the partners we wanted to work with to make sure we were engaging the right populations. The other thing we really wanted to keep in mind is our health equity lens. Um, you know, we are really sensitive to the fact that drug-related deaths disproportionately impact certain populations. And so one of the other things we really try to monitor through our medical examiner data um, is racial and ethnic disparities in drug-related deaths. Um, so I know these, there's kind of a lot on these charts, but if you look at the table at the bottom with the highlighted rows, you can see that white and Caucasian populations and black populations are really disproportionately more likely to die from a drug-related reason than other races and ethnicities. Um, in Denver, so that really has been in the in the you know forefront of our minds as we're planning programs and trying to address disparities and engaging populations who may be most affected by these kinds of issues. And then, as I mentioned, we're also looking at population level trends. So, part of um, what has informed the activities we wrote into this strategic plan is really thinking about substance misuse nationally among adults and then risk and protective factors um, in youth in Denver specifically. So 
This chart in the orange and purple really looks at past year use of substances um, by adults nationally. And we're still seeing, you know, about 20% of adults reporting that they're using illicit substances in the past year. So that's really helpful information for us to know. Um, and then it kind of drives us to look more closely at what those substances look like in Denver and how we might reach out to those populations to um, think about harm reduction strategies or other strategies to help prevent um, adverse health outcomes. And then on the right here, you can see some data on youth. So these are from our Colorado-specific surveys, Healthy Kids Colorado and Rise Above Colorado, um, and really thinking about whether or not youth have a trusted adult to talk to if they have a serious problem. So this, again, gets more of the protective factor side. We really want to understand what's happening upstream in our young people and how can we also tailor programming to address those upstream factors. Um, and part of one of our strategy areas in the strategic plan is reducing initiation to substance misuse. So you can kind of see how all of these different data sources are playing into how we're planning our programs and then as those trends change over time, this is a five-year plan, we might need to go back and adapt some of those activities to be more in line with where the data are going. So like I mentioned, some of the major takeaways um, for us when we were implementing the strategic plan and then working through some of the programming were that Denver's substance misuse issues are a little different than national headlines. Um, like I said, more related to methamphetamine and heroin use. Um, and then typically fatalities are involving multiple drugs. So that was a big thing for us to realize, especially when we're thinking about prevention efforts around you know, naloxone dosage or things that you know, we want to keep in mind that people are maybe using multiple substances. And then again, we really decided we really needed to continuously evaluate our efforts and evaluate both those population level data and the Denver specific trends to be able to most appropriately respond to something that's changing so dynamically all the time. So I'm gonna um, give you guys an overview of a couple um, specific projects that we've been working on. Um, so the 24-7 medication-assisted treatment pilot, I don't know if folks are familiar with medication-assisted treatment, um, but it's used mostly for opioid use disorders. So there are three um, major types that can be used. Um, there's no, there is naltrexone, there is buprenorphine, and there's methadone. Um, and so it helps, to, um, it, it helps folks who are trying to stop using opioids. Um, so... That's one of them, and so we really wanted to make sure that people are able to get that immediately when they want it. Um, so I'm going to dive in here. Um, so this is a project that has been happening at Denver Health since the beginning of the year um, in their emergency department, and that's similar. Um, so this is inductions on buprenorphine. So um, there are a lot of hospitals um, in the state and across the country that are starting to do these inductions on buprenorphine, um, but... The difference here is that we're doing the biopsychosocial assessment alongside it. So we had folks, um, we had providers saying, we have tons of capacity, we don't know why folks aren't coming in, and we had people in the community saying, I can't get into treatment, specifically talking about medication-assisted treatment. Um, so we had a two-day session where folks came together and were like, what are these, you know, what is happening? Where's that bottleneck? And it really was that that biopsychosocial assessment can take up to four hours to complete. Um, and there's not always staff on hand to be able to do that. Um, so while folks are being titrated to a therapeutic level while they're in the emergency department, they have a social worker or other 
older clinician come in and do that biopsychosocial assessment. Um, then that information is able to be transferred over to um, one of three places right now, currently either within the Denver Health System, um, Denver Recovery Group, or Behavioral Health Group. And so we're working on expanding that to other places as well, but we wanted to try it out first. Um, so it's, and it's a secure system that they're able um, to push that through. Yeah, and again, kind of to get back to that data-driven approach, in addition to getting that qualitative information from sort of those listening sessions to understand where that bottleneck was happening, we also wanted to make sure we're monitoring the progress on this project. It's a pilot project, and we want to make sure it's successful before thinking about expanding. Um, so we have found a lot of success with this project. Um, over on the right here, you know, we're looking at about a 67% linkage rate. So of the people who are inducted in the emergency department, about 67% are following up to that treatment, um, which is quite a, um, quite a big increase from previous follow-up rates uh, before this pilot was, um, was started. And then we also, you know, our overall goal with this pilot was to increase the number of people who are linked to that follow-up treatment within 24 hours. Again, as Marion said, the bottleneck we were finding was really that biopsychosocial assessment, but also, you know, if people are ready to come into the ED for medication-assisted treatment, they may be in the right mindset to be ready for that longer-term follow-up. And so we wanted to try to reach those folks and link them as soon as possible. Um, so that is actually going pretty well. We're looking at about 68% of those folks who are following up are following up within 24 hours. Um, and then again, we want to retain people in treatment. We want to make sure that they're getting the services they need long-term. You know, um, treatment for opioid use is a long-term process. Um, and so we really are looking at a 60-day retention rate. We're at about a 53% retention rate right now. Um, so I think things are going pretty well. It's been in place for about nine months. And uh, at this point, we actually are sort of using the information, you know, the success from this initial pilot with opioid-assisted treatment. We've been hearing from other folks that, you know, there are other issues that need that kind of medication-assisted treatment that are not opioid-related, so we're looking at expanding to, um, be, you know, all substances so we can in induct people from the ED um, who have any type of substance use disorder. So that's really exciting. Yeah. And so with the... Um so the linkage rates, so they have five days after they're inducted or released from the emergency department to be able to show up there, and that's just how long, I guess, the assessment is valid um, for these providers. And so um, folks may show, you know, may come back later, things like that, and there are a lot of other reasons why someone may not show up, you know, within a couple of days, but we're really working on that. Um, and as we expand to really look at other substances, you know, we don't have medication-assisted treatment for a lot of other substances, so it's kind of like, how's this going to go? Um, but, you know, we've heard from the providers and the folks that are receiving, um, people who have been inducted in the emergency department, that they're really happy with it. Folks come in knowing what's going on, and they're also not in withdrawal, so they're a lot more um, able to be able to... Um, take in all the information, make sure that they're kind of um, moving in the right direction for themselves. Um, you know, and this is something that um, folks mentioned. The first thing that we did when we started was this program was a needs assessment um, with people who use opioids. And, and we know that if someone says that they want treatment, they need it right then. And two days might be too late. Um, so we really wanted to make sure that people were able to have it immediately. And just one more thing I'll add to that is, you know, as when we're thinking about our strategic plan, um, our three kind of priority areas, one of them is increasing treatment access and retention, and one is reducing harm. So we're really trying to blend those together to think about how to best serve 
people without being, you know, judgmental and being open to really what their needs are at the time. Um, so this is another project that we have going on. This is the fentanyl early warning system. Um, this we received um, funds from the state that came down um, through the CDC to develop this pilot project. And the idea here is really to figure out um, if there were an increase in fentanyl in Denver, a drastic increase, um, what would we do? How would we get that information out to folks? This is really important because along with the national headlines about things being about opioids, a lot of the stuff driving the deaths in other parts of the country, especially on the East Coast in Ohio, is fentanyl, which is a lot stronger than heroin and other prescription opioids. Um, we have seen some here, but it hasn't been to the same extent as other parts of the country. So we wanted to be able um, to look at things and say, okay, are we at a critical point where we need to push this information out to folks, and what information do we give to people um, to be able to reduce um, the likelihood of overdose and death? Yeah, so in an attempt to prevent those fentanyl-related fatalities and also to prepare for a potential response, to be a little proactive instead of reactive, we're working with several partners across the city um, and outside the city to really start to understand a comprehensive picture of fentanyl from the most leading to the most lagging. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the indicators that we're using for this early warning system because I think it really demonstrates how important partnerships are and also how important it is to look at the full continuum of use. Um, so the most leading or the most upstream um, indicator we're using is drug seizures. So we're working with the Denver Police Department and the Crime Lab. Um, they're testing drugs that they've seized from different arrests to figure out whether or not there are fentanyl um, in those drugs. We're also looking at whether or not we're seeing illicit analogs. So as Marion mentioned, fentanyl is much more potent and strong than heroin and other opioids, but the analogs, um, something like carfentanil, is even stronger than that. So we really want to make sure we know if those are coming into Denver and can be able to respond pretty quickly. Um, we're looking at urinalyses. We're working with a diagnostic partner who are um, testing urine of people who are in treatment to understand what might be in their system. Um, we're also working with the paramedics in Denver to um, understand how often they're distributing really high doses of naloxone. So again, with a higher potency, we're kind of making an assumption that it's going to take more naloxone to uh, recover somebody who has ingested fentanyl than it would if they'd ingested heroin or some other opioid. Um, and then we're also looking at some syndromic surveillance, which is a national, um, basically a CDC algorithm to decide, determine how, um, how many opioid use disorder cases we expect to show up in a hospital or ED. And then we're looking at that in comparison to Denver to see, you know, if there are ever any alerts. Do we ever have more cases of opioid use disorder in Denver than we expect at a national level? And then, of course, our most lagging indicator um, is the mortality data. So working with our medical examiner's office to understand for people who are dying due to drug-related issues, um, how, what proportion of those had fentanyl in their system. Um, and, you know, these partnerships really allow us, one, like I said, to have a comprehensive understanding of how fentanyl may be coming in through the police, you know, through the police testing, and then what's happening to people later on when they may be using something, whether or not they're aware that fentanyl is in it. And the idea behind this project is really to identify sort of a trigger point where our full team, this full partnership, would respond with some kind of communication to communities of use to let them know to, you know, 
to be careful, think about what they're using. Um, it's not intended to tell people to stop using drugs. It's really to make them most aware and most educated about what might be out there because that risk of death is so much higher with something with, um, uh, with fentanyl in it. Um, so um, we are also collecting some qualitative data to start to understand what that communication campaign could look like. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the communication piece is obviously really key with this as well, and we wanted to make sure that we were able to reach people in the right way in the event that we released this alert. Um, so we did focus groups um, with, with um, 45 people and four key informant interviews, and um, there it was seven different focus groups over the course of two weeks. It was pretty intense. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, we got a lot of really wonderful information from folks. Uh, we talked to people who were in recovery. We talked to people who um, were currently using. We talked to um, people who are currently in treatment, um, and not just people who used opioids, but also people who were using methamphetamine or other stimulants, because we know that it could end up in that drug supply, and they would have even more of a risk of overdosing because they don't have that tolerance already. Um, so we talked to these folks, and what we heard from them was really, you know, when you put out the message, we want it to be straightforward, simple, and non-judgmental. Just tell us what it is, you know, um, and then the, ideally to say what drug it was found in, um, you know, because that impacts what you're what you're going to use um, or who it should who that message should really be going to. Um, also, we, um, harm reduction strategies, obviously, so there are things like, you know, make sure that you have naloxone, but not just having naloxone, making sure there's someone there that could administer it to you, because it doesn't help to have naloxone if you've overdosed, um, and there's no one there to give it to you. Um, also, you know, we talked about what different colors it should be, you know, and it was really informative for us to have folks say, don't make it yellow, because yellow is associated with um, the sweeps that the city does of some of the homeless encampments. So that was really informative. Usually you think yellow, caution, okay, that would be great, um, but the fact that they told us, absolutely not, we will ignore it, was really useful for us to know. Um, so brief statistics. Um, and then also we had folks relaying information on who they thought good gatekeepers were for this. Um, these were all anonymous, so it was really diff it's difficult to figure out how to do follow-up with folks, but so many of the participants wanted to be those gatekeepers, and they were like, I will go out and tell people right away. Um, and this also allowed us really to build that trust with people in the community. Um, you know, there's, I think, historical and current, um, you know, distrust of government agencies among people who use substances for multiple reasons, um, but it really helps to build that, that sense of community and that they know that they could come to us if something happened and that they know that we're giving them accurate information and we don't want them to die. We don't necessarily care if they use or not, um, but that we want to give them the right information so that they can take care of themselves. So another thing that we have going on um, is, and this is kind of a broad touching on multiple things, um, is peer navigation and recovery. Um, so I mentioned earlier the different action teams. One of them is the Lived Experience Insight Action Team. And so they um, kind of, they're a group of people who are mostly in recovery who will provide feedback to some of the other action teams to really make sure that we're grounded in what we're doing, um, but also, you know, work on their own projects. So their idea was to really create a peer-run drop-in center, which we haven't, you know, found funding for yet, but we're working towards, you know, what that might look like. And that might be supported by some of the city-led efforts we have. Um, 
So we're really fortunate the Denver Public Library um, has a fantastic peer navigation program. Um, so these are people who have experienced life challenges. I think they have about six of them now. Um, so these are people who maybe experience homelessness, mental health cha challenges, um, substance use, and they're overseen. Uh, there are also four social workers there as well. And so these peer navigators meet with folks um, and ask them, you know, help them navigate different services. Um, and it really helps folks to have someone who's been through it to talk to. This needs assessment we did when we were starting all these projects to figure out, you know, how do we develop something for the city, you know, for, for Denver, we really wanted to make sure that we were listening to the voice of the people that we were trying to impact. And one of the things that um, that people said was, I don't want someone who's read textbooks about it. I want someone who's been there and been through it. Um, and so we now have um, a peer navigation kind of initiative throughout the city, and the city's really adopted that, and that also we've had a lot of mayoral support for that. So it's not just in the health department, but with human services um, and things like that. And so they're hiring um, folks with lived experience to do this work, um, which is really exciting for us. And then it also kind of elevates... Um, the importance of multiple pathways to recovery and that, um, you know, people can be in recovery and working and that people, you know, it reduces the stigma associated with recovery as well. Um, so we had started, we have hired um, two peer navigators in our program so far. Um, and then we have another colleague um, who is also a peer and she is doing technical assistance with folks. So her information is down there if anyone wants um, more information on that. She spent months <laughs> trying to get this job description and um, hiring guidance through. So there's some difficulties in that because you want to make sure that you're really getting people who, who are in recovery and have that lived experience when you're doing this work. But there are also certain questions you can't ask because of uh, disabilities um, requirements. And so um, she worked with the city attorney's office and human resources to really make sure that, um, that we were asking the right questions and finding the right people. Um, there's nothing wrong with, you know, women our age having MPHs and coming in and wanting to do street outreach, but if we're really trying to find people who are in recovery, um, we need to make sure that we're asking the right questions. Um, so that was a really big success for us. And then they're operating a learning collective that is going to be meeting quarterly, and so that provides support to um, the peers, their supervisors, and executive directors in the city, um, and so that they can really you know, build that up. Um, and it's open to um, anyone who contracts with the city as well. Um, so folks... Um, know people who are interested in that, feel free to reach out. Um, the upcoming one is really going to be um, about supporting, um, about supervisors supporting um, their staff. We kind of just wanted to do a little bit of a recap of the different strategies that we hope you all can take with you and apply in your own work, in your own communities. Um, and really, uh, to kind of wrap up with another kind of real concrete example of how we've use all three of these strategies together to kind of do something that's, I know all of our projects are kind of ongoing, but, um, you know, one of the projects that we have started because of the strategic plan, but also completed since the time that it was adopted last summer, um, is thinking about Sharp's disposal, so needle disposal around the city. Um, we were starting to notice, and in particular as we're starting to work with our Parks and Recreation Department. Um, rangers and other people calling 311 were finding sharps in the public right-of-way pretty often. Um, and so we really decided we needed to work with our hazardous waste team um, through our department as well as our park rangers to try to understand what was going on, why weren't the um, disposal kiosks that we had available being used. Um, we also talked to the contractors who are responsible for actually disposing of 
the sharps that are collected. Um, and what we heard was, you know, the sharps disposal kiosks were down on the Cherry Creek Trail. They were really hard for contractors to get to. They were hard to unload. Um, and also people felt uncomfortable disposing in such a public location. Um, there was a lot of stigma attached to disposing in that kind of official kiosk. And of course, there's a number of reasons why people might have needles that they're disposing of, not necessarily always illicit drug use. So I think people were starting to feel some stigma. Um, and we also, you know, had started to think about how we can support the park rangers because they're, you know, finding sharps in places where they're, you know, planting new flowers or, um, you know, monitoring the trails. And so this led us to not only add additional kiosks, but also move the location. We had a really strong case for, um, you know, we were finding a lot of trash in the kiosks and they weren't being collected on a regular basis like they should have. And so we've actually now expanded from one to three kiosks. Um, and they are in four. really strategic, oh, I'm sorry, we have four. Just four. Um, and we kind of were trying to be strategic about where to place them around the city in places where we knew we were seeing you know, an increase in overdoses, but also from listening to our community um, of use and our other partners uh, throughout Denver, we really started to think about how to place those in a way where they'd be used effectively. Um, so that's been a really great project, and I think it's one of those things that seems really simple, but actually required partnership with, you know, um, non-city agencies, with parks and recreation, who may not always be thinking about things in a harm reduction type of lens or a um, a way that's really non-stigmatizing. So we, we built a lot of trust with not only our communities, but also with our other city agencies and how to think about these issues more holistically. Um, so I think kind of the three big strategies, both in that project and sort of peppered throughout these other pro project examples, are really to be flexible and be adaptable to a changing landscape. We, we know that Substance misuse issues can change really quickly. Um, supply chains can change quickly, and communities can really um, influence the way that substances are used or misused. Um, so again, some, something like the Fentanyl Early Warning Project, if, if that use pattern changes drastically, we want to be prepared. We want to be able to set ourselves up for success to make a coordinated response across the city. Um, again, investing in meaningful partnerships. So either across your existing agencies or even with partners that may be sort of unlikely partners. Even our public works department we're working with all the time to try to figure out, you know, how do we make sure our infrastructure is set up to, for people to succeed and for people to not feel stigmatized um, for, you know, the position they're in at any point in their life. Um, and then, again, striving to get input from the appropriate populations. We've talked a lot about peer navigation from talking and listening to communities of use, people in recovery, and as you've seen through these project examples, that's really changed the way that we initially had planned certain projects, um, and we've been able, through support of our leadership and also because our plan was written in a flexible way, we've been able to change course a little bit, um, and a lot of it sometimes, <laughs> over the course of the last year, and this is a five-year plan, so I'm sure our course will change um, over the next several years, and we're always looking for ways to make things innovative and, um, you know, most appropriate for the communities affected because our ultimate goal is to prevent overdose fatalities and to make sure people feel like they can seek treatment at any time and it's available for them. 
So with that, I'm not sure where we are in our time, but um, we wanted to leave plenty of time for questions, um, comments, or anything like that. But we really appreciate you all taking the time to come in this morning on a snowy, snowy day. Alrighty then. Well, thank you all so thank much you. for your time today. If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.